Hey everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. My name is Matt Phelan and I'm here with the amazing Tabitha Jane. How are you Tabitha? I am very well, thank you Matt. Can you hear me okay through my mask? Yes, I can. <laughs> You're coming through loud and clear. Good, so I'm sitting in a, um, in a hotel lobby. Where are you Tabitha? Um, I'm sitting at home, thankfully, with no mask on. Nice, good, good. Well, you're the, you're the talent today, so I'm just here to ask the questions. So <laughs> we've got it the right way around. Um, Tabitha, um, I'm just going to read out how you describe yourself on LinkedIn, but then get you to, to, to actually properly introduce yourself. Okay. Um, virtual team coaching and organisational transfer, transformation with nature, coach training, director and lead coach, and earth self. Um, the reason we got obviously in touch was around the nature part, but give us um, give us a bit of bit of an update on, on what you're doing and um, what you're working on. Okay, so first of all, it's like coaching with nature, and everybody goes, "What is that?" And it is a it is a way of most people understand the benefits of coaching for improving performance, improving um, all sorts of, of, of things in leaders in organisations. But the nature aspect. I'm going to interrupt you straight away. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think most people value and get coaching? Um, I think it's growing. There's a definite trend in that it's becoming more and more common um, compared to 10 years ago when I first discovered coaching, whereby there is a, a move now, I would say, to democratise coaching and make it available to as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, so it's it's exciting times, taking it beyond the, the senior leadership teams, especially in organisations and bringing it into all aspects of business and even beyond into communities. Yeah, sorry for interrupting. I just I believe in coaching so much, and I think it's so important. I just I just wanted to understand that bit, and it's good to hear that that you feel that that's moving. But um, back, back back to your introduction. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. I'm glad you you kind of inter interrupted there because I mean when I discovered coaching, I was blown away by it, having a, a background in psychology gone and worked in the local psychiatric hospital and thought this is not the type of psychology that I want that looks at people as broken and makes them wants to fix them but how do you help people achieve their full potential and that's coaching but what the the nature aspect is is that nature also is a powerful tool for transformation that when we integrate it into coaching and i don't just mean let's go and have wilderness retreats um, and then come back into the daily grind of office and try and integrate mm. it. But when we use nature as a way to enhance coaching, virtually taking the wilderness into the chaos of daily life, then we're able to start changing the way that people think, people act. And this is embedding well-being, resilience, sustainability on an even greater level into the benefits of coaching. So, I mean, it's you know it's, it's it's some people say it's like something's on steroids and it's like well coaching with nature is like coaching on steroids because it's got nature in it so excuse the pun that's about to come but how on earth did you discover the nature bit like how do you even get into that Good question. So I, a bit of a backdrop, I grew up in rural Scotland in a village um, of less than a thousand people. So I took nature for granted quite a lot. Mm. And then when I was 22, my younger brother died in a car accident. And that was really sudden, didn't quite know how to deal with it. And I mm. did what I did as a child. I just went and spent lots of time in nature. And it made me feel better. But then I started thinking differently and it kind of inspired me. I ended up setting up a non-profit organisation to help young adults affected by bereavement. And 
it did something that I didn't know what it did to me. And I thought, God, if I can figure out a way of systemizing this, of being able to bottle it and sell it almost, um, this is really, really powerful. And that's kind of what started me off on the journey. So I had been looking at, well, what does that mean? Is there a field of psychology even that would relate to this? Um, And thankfully there was. So I started bringing in the nature elements as soon as I started coaching um, and then just kind of like, figured it out as I was going along because there was no training programs, no manuals um, 10 years ago and uh, then started doing it and then people went, we love what you do, can you train us in it? And I'm like, hmm, I'll have to figure out how to do that. Um, wow. And then I've, I've figured it out um, where I'm, I'm really pleased that I've, I've had one of the recent graduates from the coach training, it's now no longer in the better stage, who came to me hey. and said, yeah, I've done the sustainable MBA, I've studied biomimicry, I've gone and I've looked at all the leadership. Biomimicry, you need, yeah. you need to tell us what, I've, I'm not even onto the scripted questions yet, but you need to tell me what that is. I will do, so I'll, I'll tell you about biomimicry. So they'd gone around all of these areas and then they'd come and they'd done the coach training and said this, this teaches me how to apply it this makes the the theoretical practical. So I was really proud of that. And biomimicry is a way of looking at biological design. So looking at living systems and taking the way that nature works and using it as a tool for innovation, product design, organizational design. So really a way of how can we learn from nature to improve what we do within the world. Wow, love that. And and going going back to Tabitha, I mean, we didn't plan we didn't, I didn't know that personal story about you. But what's fascinating about hearing that is you've turned probably one of the most terrific moments that anyone can go through and you've turned it into a huge positive in your life. Um, does it feel like that? Well, it does. And I, I, I think the thing that was really important for me, and even still, it's been 18 years um, since my brother died, what was hugely important for me was that he was kind of like the bad boy. Um, you know, up to no good, dealing drugs, all the <clears throat> things, you know, very entrepreneurial, but in a non-legal sense. Yeah. Um, and I wanted people to remember him positively, but also see what was possible um, mm. coming from a place of love. So that's very much driven what I've done. And I wanted to be able to take what was the worst thing that had ever happened to me at the time and turn it into the best, yeah. um, which is a, a hell of a mission. But um I did it and it was great um, and I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for the, the twist in my life that, yeah. and the gifts that my brother's given me um, through his death, paradoxically. Yeah. Well, yeah, the fact, well, thank you so much for sharing that, Tabitha. Um, in, I suppose it's totally linked, but the first question for all my guests is, is what makes you happy? Yeah, so I mean, I think we're going to kind of set up a a theme here nature Mm. makes me happy um and because it made me so happy i wanted to find a way to work with other people with it but part of what that is 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 exploring new areas and understanding history culture environment um whether it's within my local area or other parts of the uk or around the world um i like traveling to cities and then going on a mission to find all the green space um, <laughs> and go actually like everybody talks about London or New York's really bad if you spend all your yeah. time walking through the parks yeah. they're awesome they're so green totally. um, so yeah that spending time with family friends reading learning good conversations um, all of those things make me happy 
Yeah, I, I tell you, because I live in North London, I sometimes post up pictures of me and my kids in nature and people are like, oh my God, where is that? It looks so nice. I'm like, it's London. <laughs> it's just shock. But um, you you casually mentioned this this term that I think some people will sort of have heard in the ether, um, which is biophilia. Mm-hmm. But what is biophilia? <laughs> Oh, I love this. Um, so let, let, let's go back and tell you a little story about how biophilia came to be, because it's it's linked to biomimicry, but it's almost like what underpins biomimicry and, and, and everything else. So going back to the, the 1950s, this was the first time that the term was ever used, and it was used by a, a German social psychologist called Eric Fromm, and how he defined biophilia was a love for life. So it was a way of being that was expressed through the way that we thought, the way that we felt, and the way that we behaved. Mm. Now, what actually happened was that this term was put out there, but it didn't become popular until about the 1980s. And this was when a a North American naturalist took the term, um, and this was a guy called, I think, Edward O. Wilson. um, Mm. And he said, no, no, biophilia is actually this innate biological process that makes us as humans predisposed I can't even say that word, more likely (laughs) to focus on life, especially within the natural world. Mm. And this is what started it become really, really popular. Now, what makes it interesting when we look at it is that the evidence for it being a biological process is actually really weak. What the research has highlighted is that, yes, we've got this, this biological or this innate attraction to nature Mm. but it's actually the cultural and social learning that enhance it so if we're in an environment that supports us to be more biophilic and more inclined to look at nature then that's great and if we're not and it kind of you can almost look at the the way that the world's kind of constructed to see what's going on there where then it gets even more interesting is that um Edward Wilson partnered with this guy, Stephen Keller, who was known as the godfather of biophilia. And he was a crazy thing to be known as. What a great thing. But what he did, which is really awesome, is he spent 20 years. He was a North American social scientist and he spent 20 years researching and gathering information to go further deeper into what biophilia was. And he Mm -hmm. came up with nine things that were important that you could track right globally. I'm already scared. I'm already scared. Nine is a lot for me to remember, Tabitha. Nine is a lot, but it's it's <laughs> it's fine because then we'll split them into five and then we'll split them into four. So what he really found that for us to love life, to, for us to love nature, we first have to spend time in nature. Mm-hmm. Then we have to find beauty in nature. Also a, a deeper meaning through the symbolism that nature can give us. We also have to feel a connection to it. And then we also have to have a right relationship. So decide how we're going to interact with it. And then on top of that, it's also, well, how do we use nature? How do we get the material benefits? How do we learn about nature? How do we master or dominate nature? Which is a part of a value of loving life, which is is quite an interesting concept. And then how do we fear and respect nature? Um, And out of those nine things, it was was really interesting because those are the values but then just going back about three years ago um, a group of researchers from the University of Derby were looking at well what about biophilia creates nature connection and what that 
term is in terms of nature connection is another field of research that's come more psychology based and it looks at this felt sense of feeling part of the natural world and what the research shows is that when we feel part of nature it boosts our health and well-being and our happiness we're going to find out and it also encourages us to take better care of the environment but what is it what makes it work so they went and they did this research using these nine values of biophilia and what, what, what year was this research conducted 2007 so i okay, think okay so it's, it's fair it's in, in the grand scheme of things three years ago it's 17 yeah. So it's really, really recent. And this is what makes this exciting is that we're only now really starting to get a really good picture from the evidence um, because of the, the knowledge and the work that's been done before that's really allowing us to shift. Um, and even in terms of they've gone as far to um, create the Nature Connectedness Index, which allows us to quantify our connection to nature. There are other, other tools out there, but I think what's really interesting about what they did is they basically said that nature connection is a process. There are things that you can do to enhance the connection. And what they found is that if you think about out of those nine values, what creates a connection is one, spending time, but two, appreciating the beauty tapping into that meaning, creating that connection through engaging and going deeper and then figuring out the right kind of relationship. And all of those activities help us to feel part of the natural world. But what I think is interesting in terms of how we've approached almost like a lot of even the sustainability movements is that we're focusing on, well, how do we use nature? How do we learn about it? How do we master it and control it? And What's the fear if you think about all of the, the, the climate change that's been going on? So we're actually yeah. focusing on behaviours that don't create connection to the natural world in terms of trying to solve a lot of the problems that we've got. And when we are able to bring in the other values, then we're creating this feeling of being part of nature that allows us to actually think differently about how we would use the resources, how we would relate to the natural world and even how we would learn about it. And I think that's a, a, a quite a sobering realisation that doesn't matter yeah. how much you educate people about nature, if they don't feel connected to it or feel a part of it, the knowledge itself doesn't drive behaviour change. And it's There's like... so much learning in that, isn't yeah. it? So much. Phil, Phil Jackson, um, from the, if you watch the Michael Jordan documentary, no, I didn't. Um, the Last Dance, who's got the same quote as you, which is turn your biggest negative into your positives. And mm. um, he talks about, um, he's actually talking about spirituality and religion. And he's basically saying, no matter what religion it is, um, religion doesn't have any grandchildren. Mm. Because you have to have that relationship with it yourself. You can't, it can't be passed on to you. Yeah. Um, and, and there's so much to take from that around people need to experience it themselves, can't they? They've yep. got to actually feel it. So, I mean, that is that powerful point. Yeah, and I, I think it's so powerful as well. And I'm glad that you highlighted that because before we used to sit, you know, there's a train of thought that, oh, you're either connected to nature or you're not. And it's like, mm. well, that's great. So if you're not connected to nature, you're never going to take care <laughs> of the planet and we're all doomed. Yeah. But really, we can actually create different ways of engaging and signposts that we can learn. And in, in some ways, I, I like the word that you or like the way that you use spiritual, spirituality and re religion, because it's like there are processes and there are practices, but you've got to do it yourself to have your own relationship 
with yeah. with nature. And I know that some people will connect to nature and find that it can be a source of, of spiritual benefit for them. I know that there's research that's been done that highlights that it's about one of seven ways that people will find meaning and purpose in spirituality in modern terms. Yeah. Is, um, is there a link between nature and happiness? Yes, is the short answer. Um, <laughs> it, it might not. I'm, I'm also happy to know if there isn't. I'm always, I'm always on discovery for this. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that the research just completely repeats again and again and again to completely show that there is a link between nature and happiness. Even down to, I, I, I love this that they've done research to find that when you're gardening, there's actually bacteria in the soil that triggers the production of serotonin in the brain. So literally. Sure. When you're sticking hands in dirt it's making you happy and i think that is just one of the coolest things but beyond beyond that there is the the other evidence that shows that spending half an hour walking in nature is just as effective as antidepressants for mild to moderate depression so there's all you know all the benefits that look like that that it can improve the time that you spend in hospital, reduce pain, boost your mood, um, enhance your creativity, all of these are which are linked to making us happy. But I think the the most recent study, which you'll find interesting, because um, it links to the World Happiness Report just in 2019, um, was done just this year and it was published just in March. So just as COVID-19 hit, the University of Singapore did this really great project where they looked at 31,500 photographs across 185 countries using AI to kind of analyse them. And what they they found is the images that had the tags fun, vacation, honeymoon, were more likely to contain elements of nature compared to daily routine. And what was important and how it links to the World Happiness Report is that the amount of nature experiences that people have in a country is actually linked to higher life satisfaction score reported in the yeah. World Happiness Report. So fundamentally, what we're seeing is countries that have a culture that supports an outdoor lifestyle, spending time in nature, it makes not just the people, but the overall health of the country better. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that is so, that brings it right up to date, doesn't it? Totally. To have that evidence and data right in front of us. Yeah. So, um, penultimate question, is there a link between biophilia and organisational culture? Um, yes. Although I wouldn't say that the, the research is, is, is quite to where that we need it, because, I mean, as you can see, the, the, the emerging field of biophilia and nature um, connection is only happening and the trends are only growing just now. But what we're seeing from that evidence of starting point is that if biophilia is enhanced through cultural and social learning, then what we have to recognise is that any organisation in the 21st century has to actually consciously include nature in the creation of its culture. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's so much talk around biophilic design of great, so we can have green space around the building, create indoor gardens. But yeah. if there's not, but that's an add-on, isn't it? Well, that's it's a problem. It's an add-on. It's an add-on, but it's a starting point. But it's like, great. So, how are you supporting people to use this? Um, and you know, I, I spoke to a colleague once a few years ago, and he has a story that that stuck in my mind. He was working with uh, an energy company, and I think it was a renewable energy company in Scotland a few years ago. And he was like, they have an office building in a forest. He says, but nobody stops to look out the windows, and as a result, they are so stressed. So that kind of reinforces this aspect of you can be in a great natural setting, but if you're not aware of the setting, if you're not engaging with it, 
then it's yeah. not going to support you. And that, yeah. you know, that's that's that start of having this this organisational culture. If you're really wanting to bring nature in as a tool for well-being, well, it's not just about spending time in nature. How are you bringing in the beauty? Yeah. How are you? Using- and it's a, that's a t- it's so good point because it's like a token effort, isn't it? Where we've got some data that shows that employees in the UK are the most unhappy when it, the sun is shining, mm-hmm. which goes against everything that people believe around like what you get from the sun. Mm-hmm. But it's because people are sitting in their office looking out wishing they were out there yeah um which is by just putting the office in the forest doesn't solve the problem of reconnecting with it does it no it doesn't and it's 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 that thing so it's like great so if people are happy because they're in the office and it's a sunny day how do you move business outside i mean it's it, it still surprises me that, you know, in 2020, and I don't know why, the idea of even taking your meetings outside for a walk or having your meetings oh, outside are still a shock to some people, whereas other people <laughs> have been doing it for ages. But again, yeah. that's still just the starting point, you know, and it's it's, it's, it's like what's happened within business. We would have all these leadership retreats and go out and have incredible conversations, do better business deals than they could ever do um, in the office because they were in that environment. But then the challenge, and this this kind of ties into to why I positioned ourselves to do stuff virtually, is that the challenge then happens once you've been out in that wonderful wilderness retreat to come back into the office and still retain that energy, that enthusiasm, the insight, the creativity that you had and be able to continue to apply it and integrate it in the daily life. So that's that challenging point of which reinforces back to do you have a culture that supports it and knowing that learning or coaching is about learning well it's like are you learning from nature as part yeah. of your organizational culture so that you can tap into the way that it works and enhance any of the the hard sustainability that you're doing with the soft sustainability because for me it's always been this looking at it from a logical aspect of well if the people in the organization aren't healthy and functioning at their full optimal levels of well-being and performance how can then the decisions that they make be the same and then how do you create a sustainable world if you don't have people in the organization that aren't sustainable and tapping into nature you know you otherwise it's just disconnected thinking that sounds good but not creating the results that people really want to see so that's so insightful Tabitha we're on to the last question Mm -hmm. um which I think is subconsciously probably what's connected both of us anyway maybe it's something we're working towards to be to actively work on in the future but let's start with this question on this podcast Mm. which is how can we build a society that reconnects with nature well I I think the 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 answer there is is kind of quite clear from the entire conversation we have to create a culture that supports the reconnection as a starting point. Where I think it's also really interesting is that, yes, we have to have a culture of creating a connection with nature. One of the things that I've found through my own research when I I did um, my last master's, I, I looked at the difference between nature connection and earth connection, which you wouldn't think that there was a difference but what yeah I was about to say what's the difference yeah well this is it but what seemed to happen is when I worked with people connecting them to nature they would end up having this deeper relationship with the earth itself hence the the name of the <laughs> name of the company because I'm I'm going on um what what kind of emerges but nature can still be seen as separates or parts of it you know you can if you even look at the definition um some people will go yep humans aren't even part of nature 
um, so creating that sense of separation. But the more that you connect to nature, you start then going, oh, actually, there's something bigger. There is this earth connection. So in terms of changing our culture, we really have to start with the earth and the earth's ecosystems in mind. So it's it's almost creating a new narrative and a new story. It's like we live on a living earth. It's systems. And I mean, what I love is the, the, the quote that emerged from the World Economic Forum. The earth is the biggest business in Earth, it generates $125 trillion in ecosystem services for humanity. And that alone, for me, is like, that, that that's the business case just there. It's like, I want yeah. to know, if you can make $125 trillion a year in your <laughs> services, what do I need to do to be able to learn from you so that I can actually apply that to me and be able to offer yeah. that much value through what I do that's going to have a positive impact mm-hmm. on people and planet at the same time? Wow, Tabitha, I think that's that we are over time, but I think it was worth it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm in Knightsbridge at the moment and I'm near um, Kensington Gardens and I feel like I just need to run out there now and get into some nature. Good. So, um, Tabitha, thanks so much for sharing all the, all, all the data, philosophy and the history. Um, I learned so much um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. You're welcome. We're talking about my favourite topic, so it's really not a hard, <laughs> a hard thing to come and join you to speak about it. <laughs> thanks, Tabitha. Thank Catch you, you soon. Bye-bye.